Good morning. Am I on? Good. Just want to welcome you to Temple Bible Church, particularly if you're new here. My name is John Hattenberger. I am one of the elders here and the pastor of discipleship, and it's my pleasure this morning to bring you the Word of God. We're continuing this morning with our series called After God's Own Heart, where we look at the life of King David. Uh, We've been going at this for several weeks now. Uh, King David was chosen by God because David, uh, among other reasons, had a heart after God's own heart. And so when David was anointed king, uh, the previous king, Saul, was still king. And so there was a bit of a problem. And uh, so David was anointed king, but then he waited and served faithfully for 10 years before Saul was finally killed in battle and David could take the throne. And things went pretty well for David as a king initially. Uh, and then last week we talked about uh, a significant problem that he ran into. Uh, he tripped up and messed up in a big way. He had sex with a married woman named Bathsheba, and she got pregnant. And to compound his error, David murdered Bathsheba's husband and then took Bathsheba as his wife. And that is probably the low point in David's life. Uh, Nathan the prophet, uh, who's serving faithfully in his palace, came to David carefully and confronted him and rebuked him for his sin. David, to his credit, didn't dodge it or deny it. He simply confessed it, was repentant, and uh, God forgave David his sin. But David's sin had significant consequences. And Nathan, in his uh, talk with David, he said he prophesied that not only would the baby die, was that evil and violence would rise up from within David's own family. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, and when a prophet says that, you know something's about to happen. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And so we have this crescendo, this, uh, this sound, the same kind of sound you hear in Jaws when the shark is nearby. Something is going to happen in David's family. And we're going to look at that this morning. We'll pick it up in... 2 Samuel 13. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to 2 Samuel 13. But while you're doing that, I want to just tell a short story, personal story about my son is an illustration of this morning's talk. My son, when he was 16, got his driver's license. And as many 16-year-olds do, he promptly got a ticket. Uh, In fact, he got three tickets uh, in the first year of driving. And his third ticket was an accident that could have killed him, but his airbag saved him. And we were quite uh, thankful for that. He got a ticket in Tomball for that third accident, and in Tomball, at least back then, I imagine it's still the case today, uh, you got the opportunity to invite your parents to come down to juvenile traffic court. And so I went down to juvenile traffic court with my son Luke in regards to his third ticket. And when we got down there, uh, there were just dozens and dozens of kids, uh, all in their teenage years. Uh, Some had their mom with them, some had their dad, a few of them had both their mom and their dad with them. And we came into the courtroom all together in this big courtroom, and there was a desk on the side where there wasn't a judge. It was a lawyer who uh, would call up individuals one at a time with their parents and sit at this desk and have a chat about the ticket that they had just received. Now, I was sitting close enough to, uh, to the desk where the, the uh, lawyer was sitting, and I could hear every conversation. My son and I were sitting there. They would walk up. He wasn't being particularly loud. It wasn't intended to be a public uh, discussion, but we were sitting close enough that we could hear and I discovered immediately that this, this lawyer was, uh, he was mean. He was intimidating, and he was doing it probably on purpose. 
uh, he, one uh, gal came up and she started to giggle about something. And he said, Look, listen, young lady, this isn't funny. Go home. Come back tomorrow. And just sent her out of the courtroom. Three kids got sent home because they weren't properly dressed. One kid had flip-flops on. He said, you come into court with flip-flops, go home, come back tomorrow. Another kid had a rip in his knee, uh, on his, in his jeans, gone, come back tomorrow. And so he kept calling these people up one at a time. And, of course, my son and I were watching all this, and he's quite a stern man, and, and uh, that's his job, and that's fine. But most of the conversations had the same sort of, of pattern to them kid would walk up with the parent to sit down in front of the desk. The lawyer would say, uh, so you got such and such a ticket for doing such and such. Uh, what happened? And the kid would typically uh, look at his shoes, and then the lawyer would say, look at me. I'm up here. And he'd say, uh, yeah, well, I was driving down, uh, and I didn't see the stop sign, or I didn't know what this to come up with some lame excuse, and he'd go on for a few minutes. He'd say, okay, stop. Did you tell your parents? The kid would say, Yeah. He say, "What did your parents do?" The kid would say, "Nothing." And the lawyer would go, "Nothing." And you look at the parent, and the parent would sit there, sort of shocked for a second. And the kid would go, "No." The lawyer would shake his head. This happened. Must have been fifteen kids went up in the same pattern over and over again. My son and I are watching this, and then he gave this speech. Uh, it wasn't a rehearsed speech, although it came out almost exactly the same every time. He said, "Look, drive more carefully." You're going to kill somebody someday if you're not careful. I don't want to see you in my courtroom again. Driving is a privilege, not a right. If I see you back in here in the next 12 months, I'm going to take your driver's license away. Do you understand? And the kid would go, yeah. And he'd say, okay, now take this paperwork, go out in the window in the hallway, pay the fine to the woman, Sign up for defensive driving. Drive carefully. And off they would go. Kid after kid after kid walked up there. My son's sitting next to me. He's sweating bullets. He's walking up there. This is his third ticket in, 20, in 12 months. And he's thinking he's going to lose his driver's license. I said, relax, Luke. When we go up there, just tell the judge the truth. So we did. Lucas Hattenberger. Me and Luke come marching up to the desk, and we sit down in the chair. The lawyer looks at my son. He says, so, looks like you got a ticket here for failing to control your speed, and it looks like this is the third ticket you've had in 12 months. So you want to tell me what happened this time? To Luke's credit, he looked the guy in the eye. He learned not to look at his shoes. And he said, well, I was driving down the road on a slippery, rainy day, and I didn't realize the street was as slick as it was. I was driving under the speed limit, but I was driving too fast for the road conditions. I should have been driving slower. I put my brakes on, the car skidded, slammed into a concrete post. The lawyer said, did you get hurt? My son said, no. Thankfully, the airbag saved me, but my car was totaled. The lawyer looked at him. He said, well, did you tell your parents? My son said, yes. He asked a faithful question. He said, what did they do? My son said, well, my dad took my license away and said I couldn't get it back until I had taken at least eight hours of behind-the-wheel training from a driver, driving safety instructor. And this lawyer sat up in his chair. His eyebrows went up halfway up his forehead. And he turned to me and he looked at me and he said, You did that? You took his license away? I said, Yeah. I said, I took his license away until he 
took some driver training. I said it was clear that three tickets in 12 months, he probably needs a little bit of training. He goes, wow, you got proof that he took that? I said, yeah. And I reached down in my briefcase, and I pulled out the receipt and the certificate for the eight hours of training that he'd taken behind the wheel. And I handed it to him. And he looked it over, and he turned to my son, and he said, son, you're one lucky boy. You walked up here this, this afternoon, and I was prepared to take your license away. You are one lucky kid. Your father is the wisest man in this courtroom. And because of what he did by taking your license away, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to cancel all three of your tickets. I want you to take this paperwork, go out and see that woman in the hallway, walk up to her and give it to her. She's going to take all three of those tickets off your driving record. Now, drive safely, listen to your father, and have a nice day. Now, I would like to say that that wasn't the high point of my parenting, but I suspect it really was. I would like to say that's a normal occurrence in my life as a father, but I'm afraid it was the exception. It's a great story, and it's going to illustrate what we're going to talk about here this morning and a parent's responsibility to their children. Keep that thought in mind. Let me pray, and we'll jump into Scriptures. Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for that story, which is not only funny and encouraging, but it's just a great lesson, a great reminder to me as a father and as a grandfather about what and how we need to act as parents. Lord, I know that lawyer was just waiting for a parent to come up and take responsibility for their child. Kid after kid came up, and they just didn't do it. And so we're just thankful for that. I pray, Lord God, as we look at your scripture today, that you'd help me to teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we come to chapter 13 of Second Samuel, and we see Nathan's warning to David coming into play. Nathan's warning, it was, Behold, I will raise it. God said, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Now, David was the father of a very large family. We don't know how many wives he had, but there's at least eight of them named in the Bible. He had at least 19 sons, and he had many daughters, only one of which is actually mentioned, uh, and he had many concubines. So he must have had dozens and dozens of children, and so he was the father of a very, very large family. Uh, today, we're going to focus just on three of his sons, his first, uh, basically his first three sons. Uh, he had one, his second son actually must have died young because we don't see anything about him. His name is Chiliab, but we'll just ignore him because nothing is, is said about him. But his other three sons, Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah, we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. Now, in 2 Samuel 13, David's family starts falling apart in a very serious way. Uh, this is a tragedy in the family that takes place. Uh, in, in chapter 13, David's first son, whose name is Amnon, uh, he was basically infatuated with one of his half-sisters named Tamar, uh, so much so that he tried to get her to go to bed with him, which is uh, uh, adultery and incest. Uh, she resisted and didn't have really any interest in, in Amnon's advances whatsoever, not least of which was because she was his half-brother. Uh, and so Amnon did what uh, he just figured was the right thing to do. So he lured Tamar to his house and raped her. And uh, that was bad. And their father, David, found out about it. And so his oldest son has just raped one of his daughters. And what did David do? Well, we find that in Second Samuel thirteen twenty one. We see his reaction. It says there, when David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Now, many of you will have a footnote uh, in your Bible at this point. The Greek version of the Septuagint of the, of the Bible also has another sentence in it, which carries on from that, which says, But he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. So 
one of David's sons has just raped one of David's daughters. And what did David do? Well, he got angry, and that's normal. But he didn't punish his son Amnon. He did not punish him. Why? It says because he loved his son because he was his firstborn. Now, I don't know about your family, but in my family, if one of my sons raped one of my daughters and I didn't confront him and I didn't punish him, I think you would call that passive. You would call that weak. You would call that wimpy. You would call that disinterested. And you would call that downright neglectful. But that's what David did. He did absolutely nothing. Now, Tamar, in the meantime, went home. And she had a brother named Absalom, a full brother. And so she went home and she told Absalom what had happened. Now, what did Absalom do? We see that in the very next verse, verse 22. It says, But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So Absalom got mad also, but he held his tongue. He was civil. He was polite around Amnon. He didn't give away the fact that he was extremely angry. And then Absalom waited. He waited for two years. For two years, Absalom waited. What did he wait for? Well, I think he waited for his father to take some action. He waited for his father to come in and say, wait a minute, this isn't right. Amnon, you shouldn't be raping your sister. I'm going to punish you. Absalom waited for his father to confront this issue and throw him in the palace dungeon or perhaps hang him from the gallows because that's what he deserved. And so for two years, Absalom waited, but nothing happened. David didn't take any action whatsoever. And so two years later, Absalom got tired of waiting, and he decided to take matters into his own hands. And we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 23. Absalom decided to invite his brothers over to his house for a sheep-shearing party. After two full years, reading now from 2 Samuel, after two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king, David, and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. Now, that's a complicated sentence. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. Let me translate that for you. Uh, king David, I would like you and your sons to come to my house. Okay? That's what he's saying. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now, you'll recognize this is a very strange conversation, right? Absalom's having a party, and he goes to King David, and he asks his permission to invite him as well as the rest of his sons to his house for a party. And David, he starts making up all kinds of excuses. Oh, no, no, son. We, our, our sons don't need to go to your house for a party. It would be too, much, too burdensome for you. And then Absalom lets slip. He really wants Amnon to be there. And David goes, no, no, no. Why should he go? You know what's happening here. David knows what's going on. David knows that Absalom is trying to lure Amnon to his house in order to murder him or do something to him. So what does David do? Well, David doesn't do anything. He gives Absalom permission for his, all of his sons to go. And sure enough, when the brothers arrived, Absalom waits until Amnon's had a couple of drinks. And then the chicken orders his servants to kill Amnon, and they kill him. But David didn't do anything. 
Absalom took revenge on the rape of his sister by having his brother murdered because his father, David, was feeble and cowardly and passive, and he wouldn't punish him. So now within two years of Nathan's warning, David's family is a train wreck. We got rape and incest by his oldest son. And his second oldest son has just murdered his, his oldest son. And now what does David do? Well, David doesn't do anything again. 2 Samuel 13, 37 to 38. Absalom, he just murdered his brother, fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. This is many, many miles away from Jerusalem. And David mourned for his son Amnon day after day because he was dead. And so Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. Absalom figured his father was going to kill him. In fact, according to Mosaic law, he should have done so. So he flees to a place called Geshur and he stays there and he waits. But David didn't pursue him. He doesn't send a posse of his other 18 sons to go get him and bring him back. He didn't do anything. He just let the matter drop. And for three years, Absalom sat in Geshur and waited for his father to come get him. He waited and waited day after day. No sign of his father. Absalom's got to be thinking, what? I just killed my brother. In the meantime, after three years, Absalom wants to come back. He's tired of living in Geshur. He wants to get home to his family in Jerusalem. And so Joab, the commander of the army, you all know Joab. This guy's a brutal, brutal guy. He played a trick on David and tricked David into inviting Absalom to return to Jerusalem. And so Absalom came home to Jerusalem. And what did David do? He just refused to see him. You may have come back to Jerusalem, but I don't want to see you. It says in 2 Samuel 14, beginning in verse 23, it says, So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So for another two years... David avoided his son and refused to deal with him. Absalom had killed his brother Amnon, and David never confronted him. So Absalom was back in town. David didn't want to see him. What did Absalom do? Well, he concocted this rather clever plan to win over the hearts of the Israelite people because Absalom wanted to become king. He wanted to pull a coup and get himself put on the throne, and sure enough, he did. He gathered a following, slowly but surely, over time, And then he went to the city of Hebron, and he got some friends to join him there, and they blew the trumpets, and they all shouted and declared, Absalom is king in Hebron. And he had a lot of followers. And David, in the meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, hears about it. 2 Samuel 15, verse 13 to 14, it says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So a messenger came and told David that Absalom had declared himself king. 
and that he had a lot of supporters. And the text sort of implies that David didn't know it was coming or didn't even know that Absalom was out there gathering a bunch of supporters and was planning a coup, but I don't believe that for a minute. Because elsewhere, all the way through First and Second Samuel, you see David had a great communication pattern. He had, he had spies, he had informants all over the place. There wasn't anything that took place in his kingdom that he didn't know about. I think David knew full well what Absalom was up to because he was doing it in broad daylight, gathering supporters and getting people on his side. And David just said, I don't know what to do with that. I'm not going to do anything about it. He was just passive. And the story continues. And some of the people stayed loyal to David, and some of them defected and went with Absalom. So now we got this struggle, and it's a great story, but we don't have time to read it this morning in 2 Samuel 15 to 18. You should take some time to, to read it. David decided to run. And he left the palace behind and just took off with some of his supporters. But he wasn't finished. Because where David is really good is in the battlefield. He's a clever commander. When it comes to a battle, David's your man. And so in, in, verses, in chapters 15 to 18, you see a, a great story. It's got intrigue. It's got double-crossing. It's got spies. It's got secret messages. It's got a, a battle in the woods. It's even got a high-speed chase on a mule. You should read it. It's a good story. But the bottom line is that David's men fought with Absalom's men, and David's men won, and Absalom got killed, dead. And David regained the throne. So the rebellion was squashed. But now David's third son is now dead. What a mess. His first son had raped his, his daughter. His third son had murdered his first son, and now his third son is dead after a failed coup. Why? Why? Because David had been a passive father. Because he would refused to deal with the sins of his children. He had ignored Amnon's rape of Tamar. He had ignored Absalom's murder of Amnon. And he had ignored Absalom for four years while Absalom got support and planned his coup. Now, I'd like to say that David learned his lesson with Amnon and Absalom, that he saw the consequences of ignoring his older boys and that with his younger boys he was less passive and took a more active role in leading his sons, but I'm afraid that's not the case. Around his sons, David was passive until the day he died. If you fast forward with me for a second to 1 Kings chapter 1, David is now an old man. David's fourth son, a guy named Adonijah. It's now David's oldest living son, because the other ones are dead. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, is talking about Adonijah, his fourth son. And it says this, it says, His father, that is David, Adonijah's father David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. Now read this carefully. It doesn't say that Adonijah never displeased his father. It says that his father never displeased Adonijah. That's a horrible sentence. David never asked him, Hey, what are you doing, Absalom? Why are you doing that? David never disciplined. He never rebuked him. He never corrected him. He never, he never told him no. He didn't want to do anything that would displease his son. Adonijah was a spoiled brat. The best thing that the writer could say about him was that he was good-looking. So what did Adonijah do? Well, David was old. Adonijah staged his own rebellion, very similar to what Absalom tried. He declared himself king, and the end was similar. 
didn't go well. Within days, uh, Solomon became king, and shortly thereafter, Solomon killed Adonijah. And so now David's three oldest sons are all dead. Why? Because David didn't discipline his sons. I can see one of David's sons getting a traffic ticket in Tomball. David comes in with his son, goes to sit down in front of the lawyer. The lawyer says, what happened? I was driving my chariot too fast. The lawyer says, did you tell your dad, the king, about it? The son says, yeah. What did he do? Nothing. So the question is, why didn't David discipline his sons? Why? I don't know. Really, I don't know. David is a man of strong character. He's a strong leader. He's a powerful man of action. He's a courageous warrior. He's a decisive king. He's bold. And yet, when it came to his children, he was a passive father. Around his sons, he was ineffective. He was feeble. He was weak. He was uninvolved. He was downright neglectful. He didn't discipline them. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't correct them. He didn't punish them. And his passive nature with his sons had a devastating effect. Devastating effect on his family, on his kingdom, and on the generations to come. Continue on and, and continue reading in your Bible as you after generation after generation, just trial and trouble until finally the kingdom of Israel was split. And I know you can't trace it all back to David's attitude towards his sons, but that's got to be where it started. So now, here we are, 3,000 years after the time of David, today and you look around and what do you see you look around at families and fathers and what do you see well I'll tell you what I see I see men who are confused all the time men who are confused about their role in life as a father do I take leadership in my home or do I follow my wife's lead do I discipline my children or maybe I just let my wife handle that do I teach the Bible to my children, or do I just take them and drop them off at Sunday school? Do I get involved in my children's life, or do I just maybe sit in front of the, watch a little football, play some video games? A good way to tell what society thinks about fathers is to watch TV shows. 30 to 50 years ago, TV shows had strong and wise and active involved fathers who led their families and disciplined their children and set good examples. We got dozens of good TV shows 30 to 50 years ago with fathers who look like they got it all together. Ben Cartwright on Bonanza. Ward Cleaver on Leave It to Beaver. Steve Douglas on My Three Sons. Jim Anderson on Father Knows Best. John Walton on The Wall. And Charles Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie. And the list goes on and on 30 to 50 years ago. What do we see today? Homer Simpson. We see a different picture of fathers today. The common culture of view of fathers today on television is they're immature, they're lazy, they're embarrassing, they're disconnected, they're foolish, they're childish, they're clumsy, and they're clueless. Would you agree with that? Ray Barone, everybody loves Raymond. Al Bundy on Married with Children, Hal Wilkerson, Malcolm in the Middle, Frank Gallagher on Shameless, Walter White on Breaking Bad, Frank Reynolds on It's a Sunny Day in Philadelphia. One more, I got more. It's a sign of the society that we live in. And on many of these shows, many of these shows, not all of them, many of them, there's a wife in there. And what does the wife look like? 
She's smart, she's serious, she's sensitive, she's forgiving, she's a leader, she leads her family, and she treats her husband just like one of the kids. No wonder our kids are confused. This is what they're watching. This is what's going into their heads when they're watching television. This is how dads act, this is how moms act. It's the society we live in. Our girls are growing up with the idea that men are lazy, stupid bums, that women should rule the world. The men can't be trusted, that husbands are not worth following, and this whole idea of submission is old-fashioned, repressive, abusive, and evil. And boys and young fathers are confused about how they should act. They want to lead. Many of those young men want to lead, but they feel guilty about wanting to lead. They believe that any attempt by them to lead in the family will be unwelcome and criticized and rejected. And many of them just throw up their hands and pull up the recliner and get passive. Watch video games. Watch football. Let their wives run the family. Let the kids do what they want. May I simply remind you that God's model for the family is not the Simpsons. God's model for the family is clearly defined in our Bibles. Truth is truth, and the model that God set up when the Bible was written is the same model today. It is timeless. It doesn't care about our culture. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. You get almost 80% of the picture of what God wants a family to be. Ephesians 5, to 25 says, and we've been over this so many times, but what a great reminder it is. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The principles are very clear. The husband is the head of the family. I like to think of it as the president. The wife is the vice president. It's not because the husband is any better than the wife. It's got nothing to do with quality. It's just got to do with rank. It's the organization chart that God laid out for the family. Husbands have two chores, one of which is impossible. The one chore is to lead in your family. The second chore is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives have two responsibilities also, submit and respect. And that's the model. When it comes to our children, parents are called to discipline them. The primary responsibility, however, for discipline falls with the father, the husband, the president, as the head of the household. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The father, not the mother, has the primary responsibility for the discipline of the children. It doesn't mean that the, that the mother doesn't involve and that the father does all the discipline. No, they work together as a team. But the responsibility, the accountability, God holds the man accountable for that. And David obviously never learned that lesson. It's the father's obligation, it's the responsibility, it's his charge. And a husband and wife will work jointly to discipline their children, but ultimately the butt stops at the father. And God will hold the father responsible for leadership in his family. And his fathers were commanded to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. No question about that. We do not have the option of letting it slip. We do not have the option of being lazy or passive or disconnected or feeble or weak. We don't have that option. Now, discipline is a good thing. 
The Bible says discipline is a good thing. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says very clearly, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves or disciplines him whom he loves. The Lord disciplines those people that he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. And so disciplining your children is a sign that you love them. David made a comment that he didn't want to didn't want to discipline his son Amnon because he loved him. That is totally contrary to God's view. If you love your son, you'll discipline him. In fact, God says that when we withhold discipline from our children, we're not loving them, we're hating them. Proverbs 13, 24 says it very clearly. It says, whoever spares the rod hates the son. Whoever spares the rod hates the son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, discipline isn't always fun, right? But ultimately, it's for the good of the child. And that's where the love comes in. Because you love your child, you want the best for them, and discipline has the ability to make your child better. Now, children, and we have some in the room here today. You have a command also from God to obey your parents for two reasons. One, because it's right, and secondly, so that you'll live long. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3 says it very clearly. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It says, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. David's sons got the negative part of that promise. Amnon was undisciplined, died young. Absalom was undisciplined, died young. Adonijah was not disciplined, died young. David refused to discipline his sons. His results were a disaster for his family, for his sons, for his kingdom, for his legacy. I would just like to encourage you this morning, husbands and wives, single parents, kids, let's hold to the biblical model. Husbands and fathers, step up boldly and take leadership in your home. It's your calling. Step up boldly and take it. Don't be passive. Assert your role as president of the household. You are president. You may not like that title, but you are. God holds you and not your wife responsible and accountable for your family. Work together, side by side, husband and wife, to discipline your children. Side by side. Work together to do it as a team. And bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Wives, mothers, support your husband in his role as president. Encourage him lovingly, lovingly to take the leadership role. He wants to take it, but he needs your help to push him a little bit. Follow him, build him up, defer to him. Work side by side together as a team and discipline your children. Bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Single parents, guess what? Your job is the same, but it's doubly hard because you're just one of you. And children, obey your parents and don't look at discipline as some sort of cruelty. Accept discipline as a sign that your parents love you and they're doing it for your best. This is the biblical model. This is the model for the family that God directed us to follow. It's one that David just let slip and you see this this morning very clearly in Scripture the consequences of that. Not just in his own family but in the generations to come. That's the biblical model. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you this morning that you very clearly told us how it is that you want us to run our families. 
I'm thankful, Lord God, that despite the fact that our our culture is uh, so messed up and has such different ideas about how all that looks, Lord God, but still your word is true. It is timeless. We thank you that it's clear and crisp. It tells us exactly what you want us to do. And I pray, Lord God, that we would not be like David. Lord, I pray especially for the husbands, the fathers, the grandfathers in this room today, Lord God, that we would take very seriously that call to be the president of our household, knowing, Lord God, that you're going to hold fathers, the husbands, accountable for leadership in the home. And, Lord, I know that doing that is going to be countercultural in many ways. It's going to be difficult, particularly given the, the stuff and the junk that we see thrown at us from our culture, Lord God, but it's what you told us to do, and I pray that we would be courageous and bold enough to do it. Lord God, I pray all these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.